Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. Will 2023 be a boom or bust year for new Alzheimer's drug candidates on the regulatory horizon? To walk us through this highly promising but charged scientific environment is Dr. Rudy Tanzi, Vice Chairman of Neurology at Mass General and Harvard's Medical School and co-director of the McCann Center for Brain Health, co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Super Brain and the Healing Self, Dr. Tanzi is cited as one of the 10 most quoted researchers in the Alzheimer's space. Rudy, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Mel. Rudy, are we about to witness an exciting evolution, the potential of slowing Alzheimer's disease progression for those of us that aren't experiencing symptoms, whether it is Biogen's Agihelm, Asi's Lakembi, or Lilly's Donatumab? Lecanemab, aducanumab, or agihelm from Biogen, both of these are antibodies that clear amyloid from the brain. Donatumab from Lilly, we'll be hearing about later on. In all these cases, these are antibodies that see different forms of the amyloid. And when it binds to the amyloid in the brain, it instructs the nearby cells to eat it and clear it away. So these are very effective ways to clear amyloid. But there are two issues to deal with. One is these antibodies don't come without some safety issues. We have to monitor those patients on those antibodies with MRI imaging to make sure that there's no brain swelling or hemorrhage, even though in most cases, if that happens, it's reversible. But probably more concerning for me is that hitting amyloid and Alzheimer's is like hitting cholesterol and heart disease. It's really something you want to do early and often before symptoms. And these antibodies are being approved for use in patients who already have the disease. So they're going to have limited use in terms of improving the disease because once a patient has cognitive issues, clearing the amyloid has very limited success for improving cognition. It's better to do this preventatively. Rudy, how do you think about safety protocols and eligibility when dealing with amyloid-clearing drugs in a healthy population versus those who have already been diagnosed? See, in a perfect world, if lecanemab and agihelm and denanemab were very cheap and had no safety issues, and you ask how many people in this country could benefit right now from taking those drugs, meaning they have amyloid in their brain, but they don't have symptoms yet, kind of like having high cholesterol, but you don't have heart disease yet, that number would be close to 40 million. If everyone had a blood test today for amyloid in this country, roughly 40 million people would find out they want to do something about it. Kind of like a cholesterol test. That's why I say amyloid is to Alzheimer's as cholesterol is to heart disease. But the thing is, if you have an antibody with safety issues that's very expensive, how does Medicare and Medicaid give it to 40 million people? But I like to look at the bright side. These antibodies, by being taken seriously by the FDA and with the approval of Agihelm, now Lacanumab with a successful trial that had some benefit on cognition in the earliest stage patients, it's opening the door for us. It's opening the door at the FDA for cheaper, safer drugs that do the same thing. That's why I think you're right in saying we're entering a new exciting era of Alzheimer's because these amyloid antibodies 
the lecanemab, the aducanumab, the denanumab, opening the door for cheaper, safer, let's say oral drugs that do the same thing, where we can give them to 40 million people who find out they have amyloid in their brain, but a decade or two away from symptoms, very akin to treating cholesterol for heart disease. Do you think drug regulators will have to consider lowering the bar for testing new treatments if the hope is to slow progression rather than someone showing improvement on their test scores? As usual, you nailed it, Merrill. So what we'll need is a lot of constructive dialogue between clinicians, scientists, the FDA, and drug companies, where we'll say, it's great that you're concentrating on drugs that will treat Alzheimer's patients right now and improve cognition, but if you're hitting amyloid, you're going to have limited success there. Maybe in the earliest possible stage of the disease, the mildest of mild cognitive impairment, there's a chance, and not even a guarantee, that hitting amyloid will make you cognitively better. But what is the best way to prevent this disease in terms of heart disease? What's the cholesterol of Alzheimer's disease for prevention? It's amyloid. So the future will be to tell the FDA, look, the elephant in the room here is we don't diagnose Alzheimer's disease until someone is suffering from cognitive impairment. If we did that same thing in heart disease, it would mean you don't diagnose heart disease until somebody already has begun congestive heart failure. If we did this in diabetes, it would be, we're not going to diagnose diabetes until we know you've lost enough beta cells in your pancreas. We don't do that, right? We test cholesterol when you're young and we treat you decades before you might have heart disease. Diabetes, we look at your insulin, your glucose. We don't wait for your pancreas to start to degenerate. But in neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, we diagnose when the brain has already started to deteriorate to the point of dysfunction. That's the problem. And then the FDA says, okay, now fix that. And then we're trying to fix it by blowing out the match, amyloid, that started the forest fire that's blazing right now in the brain, which by this point is neuroinflammation. If you take that whole 30-year track to Alzheimer's, amyloid's coming decades before like a match. That causes the tangles to form. They're like the brush fires. And you can get away with that. That won't give you dementia on its own. As those brush fires initiate forest fires, that's neuroinflammation, the forest fire, that's when you lose enough nerve cells and synapses, the connections between them, to start getting cognitive impairment. So by the time we diagnose cognitive impairment, neuroinflammation is the main issue. Plaques and tangles got you there beginning 10, 20, 30 years ago. So we have to think about the right drug for the right pathology at the right time. And we have to have then discussions with the FDA to say, hey, if I have a small molecule that's super safe and super cheap, and it does the same thing as the antibody for amyloid, the lecanemab or the adjunct, and it clears the amyloid, I want to give it to 40 million people who got a PET scan or a blood test that says they have amyloid now, and then drop the incidence of this disease, prevalence of this disease dramatically five to 10 years from now. Give me accelerated approval for a small molecule that's cheap and safe, and let's see if five to 10 years from now, we're actually dropping the incidence of this disease dramatically. That, I think, is the future vision we aim for. And you might say, yeah, what about the patients now? That's where we have to target neuroinflammation. That's a whole other conversation. Rudy, as the researcher whose team recreated Alzheimer's in a dish back in 2014, and on record that beta amyloid plaque hypothesis has been fully validated, is there now any room for doubt? There's no doubt, no. As a geneticist who found those first three Alzheimer's genes, when I proposed as a student at Harvard in 1985, I was going to go after the amyloid gene. I was told by my superiors at the neurobiology department, there's no amyloid gene. Amyloid's just junk. 
And whatever gene you find from it is going to be one tin can in a garbage dump, and it means nothing. And luckily, I didn't listen very well then. I don't listen very well now. I still went after it. And sure enough, there was a gene that we found. It was on chromosome 21. It explained why Down syndrome subjects get Alzheimer's pathology. And yes, it made the material for the amyloid. We've known that the gene that makes the precursor of the amyloid causes early onset familial Alzheimer's. The next two genes we found in 95, the presenilin genes, made the enzyme that cleaved the amyloid precursor to make the amyloid. So anybody who looks at those data, you got one gene is the precursor for the amyloid. The other two genes for early onset Alzheimer's are the enzyme that cleaves it to make the amyloid. How do you deny it? And then you look at ApoE4, the most common risk factor for late onset Alzheimer's. And what does it do? It increases the deposition of amyloid in the brain. So the genetics and the geneticists have never had any doubt about the amyloid hypothesis. But we were also the first ones to say, and this is very important, early onset familial disease genes tell you what to prevent, not what to treat. And the biggest example there is when Brown and Goldstein got the Nobel Prize for studying an early onset familial family with hyperlipidemia, heart disease, and they saw high cholesterol was the result, right? They said, we think cholesterol leads to heart disease. People didn't believe them in the beginning. But now with cholesterol, we don't treat it after you have heart disease. Yeah, we do, but we actually prevent cholesterol buildup because the early onset familial heart disease family told you what to prevent, cholesterol buildup. Amyloid is perfectly analogous in Alzheimer's. That's how to think about it. And we've known this from genetics, but we've had to fight and fight and fight. And now we finally have the proof of concept. So glory be. Do you still hold to your prediction that doctors will be managing Alzheimer's disease like they do heart disease by 2025, if not sooner? I do. The best way to clear amyloid out right now is the antibodies. And, you know, they have safety issues and they're expensive. So we can get into the healthcare disparities that might come out of this because it may be that the wealthy can afford to pay out of pocket to see if they have amyloid and then pay out of pocket if they're not covered for the drug to get the drug anyway and clear their amyloid. So I worry about that, that you're going to have middle class and lower classes building up amyloid and the wealthy can pay to get rid of it. So we have to deal with that. There's lots of problems on the horizon. But the fact is, we have the first drugs that clear amyloid. It's just there's safety issues and there's cost issues. But they've opened the door for small molecules that do the same thing that can be cheap and safe. And using Alzheimer's in a dish, the mini human brain organoid model of Alzheimer's, I remember when that came out, when we published that in 2014, New York Times article said it's going to make drug discovery 10 times cheaper, 10 times safer. It's actually been 100 times safer, 100 times cheaper, 100 times faster. And so think about in the past, if you wanted to test every approved drug that's already out there or natural supplements or products, imagine if you had to do it one at a time in an Alzheimer's mouse. Each study takes one year. Forget about it, right? But now with the Alzheimer's in a dish, we've tested in the last five years with Cure Alzheimer's Fund funding, we've tested every approved drug, 1,500 of them, that's known and safe. We've tested well over 1,000 natural products that are deemed to be safe. And now we know which ones stop the amyloid, which ones stop the tangles, and for the patients suffering right now, which ones tamp down, turn down the neuroinflammation. And we're doing combinations of these. And the reason why I'm still confident to answer your question is that with these combinations of known drugs and natural products ready to go that are an easy road to the FDA, we take the door open by the antibodies, lecanemab, adjahelm, the door open with the FDA. And so we can say, hey, here's a safe combination that's dirt cheap, does the same thing, but we want to use it in 40 million people for prevention. Let's talk about that. 
you say managing versus curing Alzheimer's disease. Is that a critical distinction? There's three things. There's early detection and early prevention, right? That means know that the pathology is beginning in your brain, preferably a decade or more before symptoms, I would say even two decades before, and start treating then. By managing your cholesterol, you're trying to prevent heart disease. By managing your amyloid, you're trying to prevent the onset of Alzheimer's symptoms later on. So that's how I think about managing. It's kind of almost one and the same with secondary prevention. You need to know that the pathology is coming and then nip it in the bud. And in a perfect world, if these antibodies like lecanemab and Agilhelm were dirt cheap and super safe, we'd be giving them to 40 million people tomorrow who found out in a blood test they have high amyloid. But that's just not feasible with the budget of Medicare and Medicaid, and especially given everyone needs an MRI to make sure they're not getting hemorrhages or swelling because of the safety issues. But it's opened the door for cheaper, safer drugs that would do the same thing. That's what I'm so excited about. So let me run you through a couple of targets. If the goal is to catch Alzheimer's in patients before they show symptoms, what's the strategy? Let's say you have a family history. Mom and dad and some uncles and aunts had it in their early 70s. So I like to say, take your family history, take your first degree relative, take the age of onset of the disease, the earliest possible onset, maybe even before the doctor said so, because you notice changes. Subtract 30 years from that. And that's when you want to be tested for the beginning pathology. So in that case, let's say mom had onset at 72. She really started showing some changes at 68. Before 40 years old, in that case, you're getting your amyloid checked. Eventually, it'll be routine, probably after 35. So the blood test says, oh yeah, you have higher amyloid than usual at your age, or you need to do something. If the amyloid's very high, then you might need the antibody. They'll say, you know what? For you, with the amyloid this high, we're going to use the antibody because this is the best way to quickly get rid of the amyloid and clear it away. But then after that, we're going to manage you on a cheaper, safer, small molecule you can take every day by mouth that will keep your amyloid down. And we're going to look at you again in a year. For the average person, they might find out, oh yeah, you've got a little bit of amyloid buildup for your age. You're in the 50th percentile. Nothing alarming, but you're going to take this small molecule that's going to help clear amyloid out of your brain. Or like the one I'm working on, the gamma secretase modulator that will turn the amyloid production down. So we're going to have a cocktail of oral drugs that hit amyloid at the level of production and clearance to keep it down, just like we do with cholesterol and heart disease. But for those who come in with really high amyloid right off the bat, that's where you want to have those antibodies like lecanemab, adjahelm, didanemab ready, because those people need the big hit before they get to the serial combination toward an oral molecule. That's how I see the future. So if that's how you see the future, is the notion of a vaccine to protect against Alzheimer's viable? It depends on what kind of vaccine. If the vaccine is aimed at amyloid, frankly, I worry. With vaccines, you're injecting the body, obviously, with something that's going to mount an antibody response on your own. As we all learned with COVID vaccines and boosters, everybody has their own response. Some people make lots of antibodies. Some people make small amounts of antibodies. So I think you run the risk with a vaccine of, do you make enough antibodies to make a difference? And then the other side of the coin, if you make too many antibodies against amyloid, I worry that you're going to wipe out too much of the amyloid beta protein in the brain. Why do I worry about that? Because we found the amyloid beta protein in the brain before it's amyloid plays a role in the brain. It helps prevent infection. We found that the amyloid beta protein is an antimicrobial host defense peptide. So we wouldn't want to wipe it out. I am not a fan of unbridled immune response against amyloid with a vaccine. I'd rather have it controlled. 
So I'd rather have an immunotherapy where you inject the antibodies, you know how many are in there and you can control it. I wouldn't want to depend on just a person making antibodies themselves against amyloid. You may make too few or you may make too many. So I'm sorry, but I'm just not a fan of the vaccine approach to amyloid. Rudy, as we've discussed privately, my husband had early onset at 57 and my mother the more classic onset in her mid-80s. How much of age-related cognitive decline is attributed to genetics, and how much are things that we could potentially control? The most common age-related cognitive decline is related to the buildup of Alzheimer's-type pathology in the population. We estimate 40 million Americans already have amyloid in their brain, and that puts them at higher risk later on for Alzheimer's, just like cholesterol and heart disease. Well, if you ask then genetically how many Alzheimer genes are there, I was involved with finding the first three Alzheimer's genes that all said amyloid. Then came the ApoE4, the most common ApoE4 variant, the most common risk factor, again said amyloid. And now, more recently, we have almost 90 Alzheimer's genes. And the vast majority of those say neuroinflammation. And we found the first one of those in 08 CD33. So if you then ask, okay, well, what do these genes do? How bad are they? Well, the early onset familial genes that we first found that caused the disease under 60 and guarantee the disease, fortunately, that's only 1.5 to 2% of cases where the genetics guarantees the disease. Early onset familial genes, amyloid precursor protein or APP, presenilin 1, presenilin 2, have over 300 mutations that cause the disease in 1 to 2% of patients with certainty. The reason why I've spent the last 20 years developing what's called a gamma sequitase modulator is that our drug will reverse what those mutations do and hopefully end the death sentence that those unfortunate patients have because those mutations guarantee the disease. And the drug we're developing after 20 years and $40 million of preclinical development in academia, we're heading toward phase one safety trials this year, took 20 years. If that drug's safe and works, then these people who had no hope, where they had a mutation where how often I had to have a conversation with somebody saying, yeah, you're guaranteed to have Alzheimer's by 45. And, you know, and then some mom, you know, says to me, you're telling me that by the time my kids are in college, I may not know who they are. And that's heartbreaking. It's devastating. So that's why we developed that drug to offset those mutations. Now, the, the good news is, is that 98% of Alzheimer's disease does involve genetic risk factors but they can be offset by lifestyle, okay? So in 98% of cases, including ApoE4, the most known risk factor, even if you have two copies of ApoE4, okay, which is in 2% of the population that increases your risk tenfold, it doesn't guarantee Alzheimer's. And there, for these other Alzheimer's genes, for 98% of the Alzheimer's genetics, lifestyle matters and lifestyle offsets risk. So, Rudy, in your mind, is prevention the same as risk reduction? To me, it's one and the same. When we talk about prevention, it really is just reducing your risk for later. I don't get hung up on the semantics. I know what some people do. I know that there have been campaigns to not use the word prevention anymore and just say risk reduction. As a scientist, it's all one and the same. We're trying to prevent the pathology from accumulating as a way to reduce risk. So if you think about prevention as prevent the pathology from building up, yes, that's how you reduce your risk for later on. So remember those words for 98% of Alzheimer's genetics, lifestyle matters and lifestyle offsets risk. 
In part two of our conversation with Dr. Rudy Tanzi, Vice Chair of Neurology at Mass General and Harvard Medical School and co-director of the McCann Center for Brain Health, we focus on his New York Times bestseller, Superbrain, on how to maximize your brain's potential. That's it for this edition. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us on the first and third Tuesday of every month.